Since 2015, Pop Health Podcast has brought to you some of the best minds in healthcare, including leaders from government, not-for-profit, and investor-backed powerhouses, as they share successes, failures, and how our audience can move forward in today's constantly evolving healthcare world. Thank you for joining us for today's episode presented by 24-Hour Home Care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. I am Gavin Ward, host of Pop Health Podcast. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with two leaders from one of the largest, most prestigious post-acute care organizations here in the United States, LHC Group. Now, many of you may not know LHC Group because they're actually a parent company of what you may have heard about in the community as places like DFW Home Health. So again, they are the parent company and are running a ton of home health, hospice, home and community-based service organizations, accountable care management organizations, and even long-term care insurance assessment groups. In today's episode, I sat down with Gwen Guillot, the Chief Revenue Officer, and Bruce Greenstein, the Chief Strategy Officer. And we talk about the inner workings of accountable care and post-acute providers, and what the future of payment systems look like in healthcare, and also how the pandemic has really shaped the future of care in the home. Feel free to check out other episodes of Pop Health Podcast by visiting us at popoffpodcast.com, checking us out on our YouTube channel, or of course, finding us on the other channels out there, such as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the show. So Gwen and Bruce, thanks so much for joining the show today. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, love your backgrounds. Clearly, LHC is a busy organization, so appreciate you guys making the time uh, with me and our audience today. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of our episodes, we'd like to get to know the guests a little bit. So let's start with you, Gwen. Uh, can you share with us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you eventually fell into healthcare? Absolutely. Um, I grew up probably about 20 miles from here, a town called New Iberia, Louisiana, in the heart of Cajun country. Um, I spent some time away from Louisiana early in my career, worked for Big Four. Um, I have a finance uh, background, finance and economics. And um, one of our, um, we have a large emergency management um, company in here in Lafayette and they were a client of mine. And so that was my opportunity to return home. And um, so I spent some time in, in corporate finance uh, for that group and, and made my way into Revenue Cycle. Um, so I've spent quite a bit of my career in Revenue Cycle operations where we were responsible for billing and collecting and um, also uh, payer contracting. So securing the contracts that uh, bring in the opportunity to, to collect. Um, when the uh, when Louisiana privatized or yeah, privatized Medicaid, um, I did some consulting with a public policy entity because I thought it was important for people who really understood healthcare finance and reimbursement to navigate some of those changes. And uh, through that time period, LHC Group had become a client of mine. And uh, so I had the opportunity to join the organization full time about three years ago. And uh, here I have responsibility for our payer relationships and, and again, for billing and collecting on behalf of all service lines. Okay, great, Gwen. And one thing I, I forgot to ask you is maybe something outside of the workplace, uh, maybe a fun fact, hobby, something like that. The favorite response to that is that um, my older brother is a professional magician. Um, I say a legit professional magician, although that may be an oxymoron. Uh, so um, needless to say, my profession is, is certainly not very uh, interesting to the group. Um, he's off making um, people disappear and I'm sitting down helping them with their annual enrollment on benefits. <laughs> so, okay, for the audience, is there any like, and most of them are listening, but is there any trick you're able or, I don't know if there's a verbal trick, but uh, what's something you know from your brother, a magic trick? Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm gonna butt in because Gwen sent me a video of her son, who's quite young, making a quarter disappear behind his ears. I was taken away by it. And I was, I was very distraught. That was pure nature versus nurture because he hadn't seen my brother in a while. So uh, I had these high aspirations, but I think he's following a different path. Nice. That is awesome. And before we get to Bruce, my favorite one was the fake thumb. Gwen, do you know the, the fake thumb one with the handkerchief inside it? Yep, I know yeah. it. 
I could not. I, my good buddy was a magician, is a magician. I'm like, how does he make that disappear anyway? Um, all right, Bruce. So, uh, Bruce, before we get into your background, maybe uh, since we're talking about hobbies, fun facts, how about you? Uh, what's something outside of the workplace that uh, we might get a kick out of? You know, it's hard to follow Gwen and her brother and the magician. Like Anything that I say is going to seem, you know, quite banal after that. Um, you know, we're here in uh, sunny and hot Louisiana, so it kind of juxtaposes what I spent most of my um, my fun part of my life, my recreation time, as, uh, as a mountaineer, as an alpinist. So for years and years, um, you know, I was climbing uh, very challenging routes, but also I taught ice climbing, I taught avalanche safety, I was on mountain rescue for years, um, and I've been a, a skier the time. My favorite type of day would be to climb a challenging peak with skis on my back and uh, click into the bindings and then ski all the way back to the parking lot at the end of the day. Um, that, that would be a normal fun day. Like Mount St. Helens would be a perfect example of, of a kind of an easy climb, but a really nice long ski back to the parking lot. Wow. I bet you don't meet a lot of people in the South that have that type of experience. Uh, no. Um, there are epic uh, alligator hunts and, and duck hunts and fishing trips, but very little that involves uh, going to the top of the mountain, say, without a daiquiri. Yeah. So let's We do talk. have a five-story parking garage here in town, but Bruce isn't all that interested in it. <laughs> nice. Uh, Bruce, let's get a little bit about your background. Sounds like you spent some time in some colder climates, but walk us through uh, you know, a little bit of background and how you ended up at LHC. Yeah, I am quite a bit uh, boring, but um, I grew up in Florida and uh, I left the world of academics to um, to join the who was the governor of Florida at the time, Lawton Childs, because he was attempting to do uh, health care reform at quite a broad scale and uh, getting a chance to combine kind of the academic rigor and analysis into something that was really meaningful to change policy for, you know, one of the largest and the fastest growing state at the time was really something that I enjoyed deeply. It, it gave me uh, true satisfaction. It wasn't just fun and cool, which it was, but it was something that, that really hit the things that, that drove me as a young person at the time. Anyhow, I, I did that and then ended up um, running parts of state agencies. And as a young person, I found that um, I had a good knack for annoying people, asking why. Why do we do something this way? Why are we doing something less efficiently than we can otherwise do it? And so I ended up uh, taking on more and more responsibilities and ended up in long-term care and creating one of the first um, managed long-term care health plans in Florida. And that is still going on uh, right now statewide. And uh, you know, I look back fondly of the ability to uh, work with a great group of people in developing policy, bring it through the legislature, and then have commercial health plans, uh, you know, take it over. I went on from there uh, to federal government in the Bush administration, and I did a lot of those same activities uh, working with states all around the country, reforming their Medicaid system. And um, that is something also we're going through a rapid policy development on the Medicaid side from long-term care to, uh, you know, traditional health plans for moms and kids that worked out well. I left, um, I left government and went to work in the tech sector um, and ended up in Microsoft running our worldwide uh, healthcare business division. So imagine making uh, Microsoft products, the enterprise level relevant to the Ministry of Health across you know, large countries and to the National uh, Health Service in the UK, and of course throughout the United States with uh, hospital systems and government agencies. And then um, I got a call from the governor here in Louisiana at the time, Bobby Jindal, to be the health secretary. So uh, I made my, my first trip as a resident to, to come to Louisiana and uh, really help reform a healthcare system that had uh, been in dire need of reform since the Huey P. Long days and was still uh, rebuilding, uh, was five years before a uh, devastating you know, storm in Katrina. Now. And that kind of gave me a sense of how uh, acute politics are within the world of healthcare which has always helped my understanding and framing of, of reforms to move forward. Anyhow, we completely uh, remade the healthcare system in the state and had a blast doing it. Went back to the private sector, 
worked with private equity firms, ran some companies uh, there, and then uh, two elections ago in Washington, D.C. Uh, happened. And so I came back to Washington, D.C. to be the chief technology officer for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And um, as you know, you and your listeners can imagine, uh, the beginning of the Trump administration was, um, you know, was a very uh, kinetic time and things were happening uh, all the time. Some of it expected, some of it unexpected. And then when I uh, reacquainted uh, myself with the CEO of our company here at, at LHC, he talked about a big acquisition that they were doing, doubling the size of the company and having really grand views about making home the future of healthcare and asked if I wanted to go along with the journey. That's all he had to say. That was done. I put my furniture up for sale in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and moved to Louisiana. And here we are today. Awesome. Well, great job kind of buttoning up your story there. I, I still have to ask, when did you have time for this ice climbing that you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, all during the time. And uh, I lived in Seattle on and off since 1997. And so... Okay. Um, you can either have a job that is super demanding of all of your time until late at night, or you can have a job that takes the, you know, an appropriate amount of time and then spend all the rest of your time in the mountains. As an example, I moved to, uh, to Seattle and it was February of 1997. It was more than two years uh, before I spent a Saturday night in Seattle proper in my own house because I was every single weekend sleeping in the back of my truck, sleeping on the side of a mountain, sleeping, um, you know, somewhere in the, in the forest, uh, you know, while backpacking on the way to, to a climb. So um, that's where my, uh, one of my true passions lie. That's great. That's, I really appreciate you both sharing these stories. We've got the magic, we got the adventurer. Um, I think a lot of people may, you know, they work with you in business. Our listeners hear about you guys, but this really humanizes you and uh, share some, some neat sides of you as well. So let's jump a little bit into your expertise and um, just a quick shout out to your colleague, uh, formerly known as James Nicholson, Nick Nicholson, um, who helps uh, bring us all together for this episode. He helped connect us for uh, last year's episode with LHC as well. Uh, folks that are listening or watching, we had Josh Profit and Dr. Ben Doga on the show with LHC last year. Um, that was during the pandemic, the early stages. We also talked a little PDGM. We'll jump into those topics a little bit today as well. But this might be more of a, uh, well, I guess it could be a Gwen or Bruce question, but can you remind our audience, and again, most of, or a lot of our folks are frontline clinicians. They may not necessarily be behind the scenes doing strategy work or much contracting work, but what is value-based care in layman's terms and where do post-acute services fit? Gwen is the expert in this topic, so please let me defer. So in short, value-based care is uh, different from what we're all accustomed to. So the opposite of that would be um, what people call fee-for-service or transaction. And so in a lot of your healthcare experiences today, um, the provider is paid for that interaction with the patient, be it an office visit, a hospital stay, or in our example, a home health visit. Um, Value-based means that we're moving away from that concept to pay for the outcomes of the care. Um, we, Bruce and I talk about a spectrum of value-based moving from process-related measures to outcome-related measures, and then finally to total cost of care measures. Uh, the end game is that we would be improving care delivery uh, while managing cost efficiently. And so that's that's where value-based uh it would be headed. Great. Let's, let's um, Gavin, put an example on to um, under Gwen's framework. So, you know, the opposite is fee for volume. So in in the old days, and which includes today, we'll, we will look back at today as the old days still. Uh, the more visits you do, the more office appointments you do, the more MRIs you do, the more you get paid to do it. You just get paid per click. And what uh, what we're talking about today is the difference between process outcomes and total cost of care is sort of that maturity model. We're still very much in this process oriented or the first phase of value-based care. And imagine a uh, primary care physician's office, they're gonna go to value-based care. So they're gonna still get paid by every visit, but they get a little bit more if they make sure they uh, measure hemoglobin A1C 
or they uh, screened for a behavioral health issue. It doesn't mean they fixed it, addressed the issue, or kept it in control. It just means that they're at least doing a process. The next piece is outcomes, and that is, say, maybe it has to do with you're managing your patient's hemoglobin A1C, so it's six or below. So you're, for your diabetic panel, you really are trying to intervene in their life. Or maybe it's uh, the number of times your patient panel uses the emergency department unnecessarily. And so those are measures that a health plan will use usually to give extra money to a primary care physician. And we have a whole set of examples in, in home health we might get to later. But the last piece is around total cost of care. And this is really the piece that may be ingenious about how uh, the federal government, CMS and CMMI, is trying to work with physicians through their ACO program to just measure, we don't care how you go about doing it, but spend less next year. Yeah. So if that means that you have a special trick about making people take their medications or make sure they call uh, your office before heading to the emergency room to maybe have an intervention there, if they call you and say, you know, I'm maybe could use a CAT scan instead of an MRI or an X-ray instead of a CAT scan. That's really where we're moving right now. Now, uh, clinicians don't have all the tools necessary to make these downward substitutions to save money, nor are they necessarily incented to do that. But that is the direction we're going. Very, very little, Gwen, I don't know, maybe 1% of the total healthcare spending in our nation today is tied to a total cost of care value-based arrangement. So we're at the very, very early days. Um, one of my old bosses would talk about uh, value-based care, um, and this is my, uh, at HHS, Mike Levitt, the former governor of uh, Utah, would talk about we're 10 years into a 25-year journey. And then some number of years, that's when we worked together. I saw him uh, a couple of years ago and he talked about being 15 years into a 40-year journey. So we may continue to move the goalposts further and further away because this is um, about the largest single portion of the U.S. economy, making up almost almost a fifth. We're at about you know, 17 to 18 percent of the, the total U.S. economy. So changing that, changing the the basic infrastructure is really difficult, time-consuming, and changes the way that all of these economic arrangements financially, contractually are constructed, and it also has to change the way medicine is practiced as well. Yeah, those are all great points, and thank you guys both for answering that. I was actually at one of your home health locations uh, last week. And your executive director was helping me explain or helping me understand how in the Dallas market, you guys are winning, you know, joint ventures and partnerships and reducing that total cost of care. Um, and hopefully that'll increase. And um, you guys actually had an acquisition out there uh, recently as well. So um, for folks that are listening, one thing I forgot to do and ask uh, Gwen, uh, I'll start with you, Gwen, is what is LHC? Um, why don't you just briefly share what is LHC? What does it comprise of? Um, I, I will uh, share that with you and then I'll let Bruce uh, fill in where I've, I've left anything off. Uh, we are known uh, for our, our home health services, uh, but it goes far beyond that. So we operate in 37 states providing home health, hospice, home and community-based services, and long-term long -term acute care facilities in some states. Um, what is really fascinating about LHC is you don't necessarily see that that name yeah. uh, because we adopt the names of the local systems in, in a joint venture partnership and maybe the system that we are partnered with. Um, but we very much believe that the our services are local. We believe in autonomy for our uh, clinicians who are serving the patient. And we think that locally branding is a way to represent the needs of our uh, the communities we serve. That's great. So I mentioned I was in Dallas meeting with uh, one of your teams out there. And if someone, you know, types in LHC Home Health Dallas, it may not come up, but what they might find instead is DFW Home Health, part of LHC. So uh, great point, Gwen, and not a lot of companies necessarily operate that way. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing that. Uh, shall we transition to Bruce or was there anything else, Gwen, 
Yeah, let me let me kind of give the other side of the coin here too. So as Gwen said, what we're really well known for is uh, is being one of the nation's largest home health providers. Within the industry, I think we're really well known for our culture. Uh, this is a really special company and I've worked for many. And I have to say that um, I'm usually the most elated by our leadership, the attention to the most important uh, people, those that we serve, our patients. And then for our employees, it's the clinicians. So um, Gwen and I are like kind of window dressing, we're to the side. Uh, the real things, the people that matter the most are the clinicians that are providing the care each day. And we've created a company that really provides uh, the best benefits to the clinicians, the most focus on the clinicians. And really, we do our job around figuring out how to make the clinician's job most impactful, which could be everything from most efficient for them, giving them the most uh, tools that they need to do their job the best. And we look at our patient satisfaction scores and our patient outcomes, and they're either at the number one mark or at the very, very top. And there's a reason that we're all organized around creating those kind of outcomes. And, and again, that's where I think about the other side is culture. But we also have other business units. So um, extremely not well known is uh, we have the second largest ACO management company in the country. So again, when I think about the, the name of your program, Pop Health, I think about that's where we have um, really harvested so much of our expertise in population health because we are working across uh, hundreds of thousands of Medicare lives across 29 disparate ACOs to create savings and total cost of care. And you do that by population health methods. So that's been um, a big benefit that has infused itself in the operations of this company. We also do uh, long-term care insurance assessments, which is another peculiar skill set, but it has also allowed us to understand that process of assessing and case managing patients at a very granular level with an eye towards keeping them in their home and keeping their total cost of care low. And then lastly, we do primary care in the home, uh, traditional old school house calls. And um, that is called advanced care house calls. We do that in uh, many states in the middle of the country, middle east, south of the country. And um, that's also given us the ability to understand how uh, patients' needs can be addressed in the home with higher and higher acuity levels to, you know, de-escalate, you know, what could be compounding uh, clinical conditions and keep them from needing to go to uh, the hospital or to the emergency room. So all those pieces are like um, adding seasoning into a roast, and that roast is our, our home health business, and it has allowed us to uh, infuse all of those learnings and uh, acumen into that, you know, that main piece of what we do. That's great, Bruce. I didn't know all of this and I've known you guys for a little bit. So thank you very much. Now, I'm curious about two of those pieces. Um, we'll start with probably the smaller conversation. Uh, you mentioned long-term care insurance assessment. So is this for individuals who have purchased like a long-term care insurance policy and you guys will go in and figure out how that best can be utilized or, or tell me about that? Yeah, so uh, traditionally how it works, you buy the long-term care insurance policy uh, and then you just continue to age and pay your uh, premiums. And at some point, your uh, level of ability or your load of disability starts to increase. And you worry that, am I going to have to go into a nursing home, an assisted living facility? I think it's time that I trigger my long-term care insurance benefits. Okay. So you call the company, you say, I can't make it on my own any longer. And then uh, one of our people come out to your home and do a very comprehensive assessment and provide you some options. And one of those options uh, would be to trigger your insurance policy. And the goal there would be to keep, uh, you know, the policyholders in their home rather than both a more expensive and likely a less desirable uh, institutional setting. Okay, awesome. And then you mentioned ACO management. So again, a lot of our audience, you know, may have heard the term I know that that term is known, but maybe the concepts are foreign. So what is an ACO management company and how does that differ from an ACO itself? Yeah. So, you know, many people know what ACOs are, but uh, as the government does very well, 
is not making anything uh, very easy to comprehend or not explaining it well and further complicating it year after year. So I tip my hat uh, to my you know, former government colleagues there. Um, so the ACO is an accountable care organization. What we recognized is that there is a place for uh, managed care in Medicare, but there's also a way that if you're, that you don't have to be completely unmanaged or managed, that there's this, this other way to do it. So in our fee-for-service world, regular uh, people on Medicare that don't want to join a managed care plan go to see their doctor regularly. There's no strings attached. But now the federal government has created a program for the physician group to be able to uh, have incentives. In other words, if they create savings on their group of patients and that savings is of a certain amount, it has to be more than 5%, then the federal government shares back half of those savings with the physician group. So at the very beginning, most docs said, that sounds like a headache, count me out. I'll go into some other program. Over time, when they saw their colleagues at you know, medical society meetings and they said, wow, we actually got a pretty big check, we're able to expand our clinic, hire new people, or you know, buy a, a new car, whatever the case is, um, more and more physicians started to enroll. And they also realized that, that playing the game, as you know very well, of population health is really an exercise in understanding uh, data. You have to really get to know uh, the, the contours of your patient panel. You have to know who are your high-cost patients. What are some uh, very good interventions to take? How do I do uh, annual wellness visits? How do I know who's had them or doesn't have them? So that's when um, physicians that lead their physician group that are now either part of an ACO, could be a large health system, or their own, it could be you know, Springfield Medical Clinic with 21 docs and they're running their own ACO, they call for help. And so one of the companies that they're going to call to help manage their ACO would be our company called Imperium. And uh, they come in and provide the data management services. We do a lot of coaching to their uh, staff. Uh, we help, you know, conduct clinic based on maybe their own, um, whether it's around flu shots in the fall or getting annual wellness visits or doing diabetes clinic, diabetes clinics or other high cost chronic disease groups. And uh, that has really made a big difference in both the total spending, but also in the patient's lives. Okay. So is a ACO management company, I've heard the term convener. Is there any relation or are those totally separate? Gosh, I know this is one of Gwen's favorite uh, topics, so I don't want to take up all the oxygen, so I'll hand it over to, to Gwen. Um, in, in that example, so let me start by saying what a, a convener is an entity that on behalf of somebody else is managing care. Um, so if you take the ACO example that Bruce just described, I would actually describe the ACO itself as the convener of the CMS program. Okay. Um, the ACO management entity is providing services and support to that convener in order to ensure their success. Okay, got it. So if um, if there's like a Navi Health, which I think they were acquired recent or relatively recently, they were known as a convener. So in theory, would you get would your AC, would Imperium work with Navi Health in theory, or does that? Yeah. Matter? So it's a good question. Um, again, let's kind of tip our hats to the, the massive and deep complexity that the federal government has created. Uh, at the same time, these are highly valuable programs. So there's, um, it's a compliment, but you know, really there's a, a lot of very smart health policy people, not people with marketing backgrounds. So we use the term convener almost as a proper noun for specific programs. So if you're familiar with the bundle program or the BPCI program, the entity that, um, the entity, I'll come get to in a second. Um, the entity that will uh, bring together, act as the intermediary of the federal government and the providers themselves is termed convener. So they basically take the payment and then they allocate resources or act as gatekeeper. Okay. So a perfect example and where there's been a lot of progress made is in the uh, total joint replacement 
BPCI program. Right. In the past, you go to the hospital, you know, inpatient, stay a couple days, get total knee or hip. You come out, you might go to an inpatient uh, rehab facility. You might go to a, a sniff. After that, you go to home health. Uh, and then after that, you come back to the uh, orthopods office to do some outpatient therapy. Well, a lot of that care was uh, more than clinically required. And yep. so this program goes to uh, a convener. A convener says, whoa, 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 let's start doing these procedures in an outpatient facility. Saves a lot of money. Oh, let's go ahead and change uh, the percentage of patients that go to a SNF or an ERF and let's send them to home health directly. Or those that went to home health, you know what? No post-acute care. You can drive, so you'll be discharged. You go home, take your uh, pain medications, and in three days you come back to my office and we start uh, 10 visits of outpatient therapy. So that they have acted as the downward substitute pusher, and that is what the, the term convener has held. Okay. Got it. All right, so the ACO management company that you guys have, is that open to anybody who wants to bring you on or does it have to be a group that you're, you're physically in those territories or physically in those geographies? Well, it's interesting. There's uh, a very little relationship between where we provide home health or hospice care or any of other of our services. It is really nationwide. We're uh, from Seattle all the way through Florida. Um, and what we're also seeing is while this program was designed and developed and targeted towards the Medicare population, uh, commercial health plans have recognized that they have patients that go see these same physician groups. Right. And that if they pay for some of these services, their patients will get all the benefits of being population health managed and all the programs and campaigns that get set up and data analysis and care management. So we're starting to see an influx of commercial payers come to us and say, hey, hey, can we just bolt on our population onto what you're already doing? And we love that for all the reasons of the benefits to patients in the US healthcare system and its additional revenue for us. Okay, so if you guys have a great year, let's think of like a sports team. You save the system or the partner significant money. Let's say in basketball, you play 82 games, you have a perfect season. You go 82 wins and zero losses. Let's say you did that in 2020. How do you improve on that in 2021? Are they expecting you to improve if you have a fantastic year and you have to improve on that in order to get rewarded? So you are um, very bright and insightful because you're citing one of the barriers structurally to the uh, longevity of this program. At what point have you reached some optimal performance of clinical efficiency? And then anything beyond that would be a function of gatekeeping, withholding care. Uh, we're doing something that would be clinically inappropriate. And that is um, maybe something that we, we find ourselves on this long journey. I can tell you right now to rest assured, we are nowhere near that point. We are so far away from clinical optimality because of just all that the contours and culture of ordering in our healthcare system. But nonetheless, you are right. Many physician groups uh, believe that this is a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of the federal government, um, you know, just putting more physicians under their thumb to spend less and less and less and take away their discretion as a, as a physician and making decisions on behalf of their patients. And Gavin, I'll chime in because, you know, the ACO experience is a great way for us to start to pursue value-based opportunities with uh, payers. And what you just touched on is a critically important part of, you know, when you, when you, what measures, number one, what are the mutual measures that are going to be in place uh, for us to decide if success was achieved? What's the baseline? you know, over what period of time, and then how might that evolve as you do see that improvement in order to make sure that both parties continue to be incentivized. Um, what I've experienced is that you have to come at things willing to continue to evolve and revise because to Bruce's point, 
um, if you end up with too rigid um, a, a scenario, then at some point the alignment around incentives isn't where it used to be. Um, so a huge part of that negotiation is figuring out the appropriate measures, but also I think creating the way to, to start to evolve those as you have that experience together. All right. So this, this might be what Bruce was talking about. So I am a, uh, a PPO patient. My wife's a teacher. She has a PPO plan. Um, I'm, I live in California and the union is very strong. So my wife's benefits are incredible. It's, I can't believe it. It's, it's amazing. Um, I could be in an ACO even though I don't know it, right? Even though I'm a PPO patient, is that fair to say or? You could be in what's called a commercial ACO. So okay. the same concept where lives are managed a certain way and somebody is bearing risk for your health. Okay. Um, but similarly, an a, a Medicare patient, so a traditional Medicare patient could be part of an ACO and not realize it because they're visiting their primary care physician you know, they're, they're kind of doing their thing regarding their health care. And so for, from that aspect, it could be pretty seamless to the patient. And so, Gavin, I, I'd encourage you when you uh, go for your annual visit uh, next time, ask your physician if uh, she or he has some visibility into the patient's uh, arrangements or they just treat all of their patients the same and they allow you know, their business manager to, you know, negotiate these contracts. But for a physician, it's really difficult to sort out what patients got what coverage and what they can and can't do. Probably the, the only thing that you might find is that if they do their own labs in their office, that they may be bound to send them out to LabCorp, for instance, or if they're going to prescribe certain drugs that it's not on your formulary, or if it's, you know, with a large union, it likely is on the formulary. But those are the, you know, the points that are, you know, the dial gets turned a little bit here and there, but otherwise, treating patients differently based on uh, their insurance coverage is you know, side, we'll leave the moral imperative to the side. But, uh, you know, from a transactional perspective, it's really tricky as a doc, like trying to sort that out. Yeah. That's why it's important for uh, docs to really choose what kind of program they're going to participate in and say, this is how I'm going to run my practice. This is how I'm going to approach my practice of medicine altogether. Yeah, I mean, this, this is all very complicated stuff. And I hope our listeners... Uh, are able to follow. Bruce and Gwen are, are so wise and um, and just know all of these things. So audience, I hope we're, we're making this understandable. Uh, we're trying, all of us are, are trying. Um, it's very confusing. Some of the, some of the post-acute organizations have fled when they heard things like PDGM. Um, what's interesting in 2020 was more home health, at least from what I read, the industry as a whole had a lot more utilization. I could be wrong, but that's the headline I read recently. So LHC, you guys got a lot of resources. PDGM was a scary moment for home health. Um, could you guys really quickly touch on PDGM? Why, yeah. why or why not? That doesn't matter today. And ultimately, how you guys have had a success, been able to be successful with all this fear over the last year. So let, let me start with um, just kind of what came out of Washington, D.C., and then uh, Gwen can tell you how it actually works. So uh, PDGM, patient-driven grouper models. It was the federal government's uh, once every sort of generation, the new payment model. And uh, home health started out being uh, cost-based. So basically, home health agencies at the beginning would go and provide a ton of care and just send a bill to the federal government, a cost report, to say this is what it cost me to provide the care, and they'd get a check. Then the next generation, uh, we, you know, we had traditional episodes, uh, prospective payment. And so we did, we saw all these patients, they had this um, conditions or uh, diagnoses, and we would get paid for that. So the federal government came back and said, the way we pay uh, providers, you know, home health agencies is, is a little askew. So for example, uh, it was pretty well known that a home health provider could uh, make higher margins from treating patients that did a lot of therapy that had procedural post-acute. 
Yeah. Yet, uh, wound care patients, uh, you were for a um, nurse that was doing discharge planning in a hospital, it would be difficult to get a, a home health company to take that wound care patient. And so, you know, we had um, an imbalance. So CMS went to work at trying to address that imbalance. They had a certain number, 136 different uh, groups to start with. And then when PGM came out, it went to 432. So very granular. So they were able to track uh, it, with a fine tooth comb, who has what condition, uh, what complexities, what comorbid conditions, and paying appropriately. I think they got that right. They ended a few other programs, which essentially prepaid for, uh, for an episode of care, which um, made it so small cash strap uh, providers would get income during the uh, episode instead of having to wait till the end and then billing for it. That kept their cash flow going. Um, but one of the pieces that was problematic is the government said, hey, we're giving you all these new categories to bill. Clearly, you're going to game the system. So because we're so smart and we know that, we're going to go ahead and cut your rates to start with and then we're going to try to end up at about, you know, a zero, a net uh, even at the end of the year. And that cut was proposed at uh, 8%, 8.01 exactly. And so the provider community, all of us got together and said, you know, let's model this out. We couldn't find how the federal government got to such a big cut. Yeah. So we all went to Washington, D.C. together to explain why this was a overzealous cut, went way too far. Um, all of that back and forth over the course of almost a year uh, produced a, a cut about half of that, 4.36%. And that's what we're all living with today. Now, you had mentioned what has been the experience so far. So we're seeing data that shows that while uh, the whole industry has rebounded in terms of taking you know, new admissions, but the rate at which we bill for those services is still a little low. Yeah. As our data shows, we're actually, uh, the cut was too big for the true experience. And let me hand it off to Gwen to, you know, put some meat on the bones here. She um, works with it every day. Well, I'll shift and talk a little bit about the practical side of this actual implementation. So it, it was absolutely one of the biggest reimbursement changes for our industry to face, certainly in, in, in my career here. Um, what that means for our counterparts and for ourselves is um, basically a, an entirely different um, knowledge base on how the reimbursement works. Our systems um, and, and, you know, making sure our systems keep up with it, adapt to the change, and then also understanding where the gaps exist was important. Um, and we are still now working through um, issues with payers, be it our um Medicare payers or Medicare Advantage plans who are working to update their own systems. And so, so practically speaking, um, it took a lot of, of resources and, and support to be able to navigate uh, that particular change and keep the cash flowing and, and make sure that um, we, you know, we get all revenue. From a strategy perspective, one of the advantages is that looking at our clinical groupings the way Bruce described has really set the stage for us to continue to manage the population. And so being able to assess our care delivery um, amongst you know, higher diagnosis categories is a, is a great and welcome topic with uh, payers and with conveners, right? Because they wanna see how we're truly managing an episode of care. And so I think that um, as we, you know, we're working through it and kind of, um, by the way, we had a pandemic uh, that happened throughout those things. Um, but I, I think it is setting the stage for us delivering care and being flexible enough to deliver it in the manner that best suits uh, our different payer sources. So it sounds like you guys are able to, uh, to handle it okay. As Bruce mentioned, um, you know, it, the cut was a little bit bigger than what should have been done. Uh, it's nice to see that the government's hearing you out, Bruce, hearing you and your counterparts with other big entities. Uh, that's nice to see. Um, so transitioning back to the pandemic that you mentioned, Gwen, as we close out the show today, not treating COVID patients, but just in general, as we come out of the pandemic here, 
Um, looking back, how have you guys changed as an organization? You want me to go first, Gwen? Yeah. So um, I, I'm going to speak from the sociological side to start with because um, we can see this coming. And this is a, a company that has grown out of South Louisiana. So like a perfect storm is something that we're quite used to here. Uh, we get battered uh, a couple times a year and uh, we know how to pull together and fight through some, you know, really uh, some difficult odds. And so as a company, we came together as a team uh, really, really well. There was so much codependence in developing uh, new strategies and tactics to handle what was uh, coming at us in early days. This is uh, before even the, um, the uh, event was, you know, termed a national disaster in February. And then we had the declaration in March, and then we were working with our friends on Capitol Hill and within CMS and HHS uh, every day, all the time in trying to figure out how best to help patients that were in the hospital to come home, how best to avoid uh, patients going into the hospital altogether. Nursing homes were shutting down, you know, with all the horrific stories. Um, and we were looking to create alternatives uh, for that patient journey. We were able to innovate uh, because we had to. So it wasn't just uh, the chief strategy officer cajoling people to do something differently and getting better results or a better margin or better patient satisfaction. This was innovate or lose the chance to take care of patients. And so we stepped up very quickly. For the, the world of home health, this is um, a kind of a slow moving part of the US, US healthcare system. And this was a time where we had to absolutely deal with uncertainty. There is no way we could talk about, you know, what it's going to be like for the next quarter or uh, set some uh, viewpoint and then stick with it. Every day things were happening and we had to get used to it and then deal with it around it. And I think what is the product of that for us, so for the U.S. healthcare system in many ways, whether it's telemedicine, SNP diversion, et cetera, or the way that we work, this is the new norm. This is a very uh, a durable condition that I don't think goes back. And when people have asked me, do you think, well, you know, now the hospitals are coming back and nursing homes are safer, you know, what happens? Does it all go back to the way it used to? And I thought about it, you know, there are all these metaphors that toothpaste is out of the tube or whatever. I thought about a genie out of the bottle. And I thought the thing that really has changed, not some metaphor about putting the genie back in, but the genie has given us one wish. That wish is to go home. And we're in this business, we do what we do because we're able to deliver on the wish of patients that want to, after a hospitalization, or before a hospitalization, or when they think that they can't live alone any longer, their wish is to be at home. And so the things that we do in, in our whole sector all together, it's, uh, it's great to be able to deliver that wish. And I don't think anybody can imagine it going back to a day that says, you know, I kind of like the food at a nursing home. Maybe I'll just go for two or three weeks before I go home. That, those days are over. Yeah. All right, thanks, Bruce Gwen. So kind of adding adding a bit to that, um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that we're talking about complex topics and um, and that's true. Through my career, we've I've looked at healthcare through the lens of finance and economics. And so people like me and Bruce have spent a long time talking about the home as the epicenter of care because it makes sense. It makes sense economically and in a lot of circumstances clinically. Um, what we have now is that the patient and the caregivers of that patient are recognizing the value of the home. And, and that's really what, that's what, what I hope won't change. Um, there is no greater calling than to serve our parents and our grandparents and our veterans. And to be able to do so in their home where they wanna be is just fundamentally uh, important. And so I think that that's a, a blessing of COVID. And um, certainly it, it should absolutely continue um, because it's, it's what people, to Bruce's point, it's what people want and it's what we should be doing. 
Awesome, Gwen, and the awesome Bruce as well. Uh, you guys have been a wealth of information in today's episode. Um, that is it on my end before we wrap up officially. Is there anything else you guys wanted to leave our audience with before we head out? You know, I'll just say that um, we're in a, a really interesting political climate for healthcare today, and uh, things are, are changing all the time. We're coming out of COVID, uh, and I think most people think we're going to come out of COVID and be done. But as I watch uh, the data for vaccine hesitancy yeah. and I watch what's happening around the rest of the world, I would tell people to, to get comfortable being in a state of the pandemic. It will happen for a long time to come. And I think policymakers uh, on Capitol Hill and in Washington, D.C. are beginning to recognize uh, the real value and potential of providing more health care in the home as well. And so uh, I think you'll start to see some more interesting insights and action taking place uh, in Washington that will translate to our world. And I think it'll be in a very positive way. Well said. Gwen, anything else before I wrap it up? Enjoyed spending the time with you. Um, anybody who wants to spend some cocktail time talking about healthcare reimbursement uh, can just head on over to Louisiana and we'll entertain. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I, I do have to say, I have felt a warm sense of hospitality among the LHC group. I haven't met you folks in person, uh, but I know the invite through uh, Mark Willis is there and I look forward to hopefully uh, putting a face to the name one of these days. But yeah, LHC has been really warm and welcoming uh, from Nick and Jill uh, to you guys, to Mark. I really appreciate it. Again, folks, uh, our guests have been Gwen and I hate to admit it, I don't know how to pronounce your last, Guillote? Go Giat, uh, good, good shot. <laughs> All right. Well, Gwen Giat has been our guest, along with Bruce Greenstein, leaders at LHC Group. Appreciate you guys joining the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes, or Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.